Thank you, everybody, for joining. I really appreciate it. Thank you for anybody who's tuning into the podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome back our friend Shlomo, back from his trip to Eretz Yisrael. Baruch Hashem, it sounds like you had a very uplifting time. And you should bring back all the hashpoys that you got there. You should bring it back. And be mashpi on all of us. The Avir there, it's Yisrael. Next, next week, uh, there's not going to be a shir. It's a busy week. Mr. Shem, uh, the following week, so uh, we'll try to have the shir on Wednesday night. for the uh, Hopefully for the month of July. We'll have it every Wednesday night. And then uh, usually we take a little break. And then we'll resume Mr. Shem, uh, hopefully in El. Um, it's early this year. <clears throat> yeah, it is early this year, yes. It's, uh, El is... What? Early August, right? Something like that, yeah. We're up to Parshas Kairach, Be'ezus Hashem. Another one in the uh, list of the unfortunate stories that we've been reading about almost every single week in Chumash Bamidbar. And in each case, we find that HaKadosh Baruch got upset with Kal Yisrael and there was a punishment. We saw that last week by the Meraglim. We saw the week before by the Mis'oinanim, by the Mis'avim, the Ebeshter got angry when Kal Yisrael did the wrong thing, and there was consequences. But here in this week's Parsha, things reach a whole new level. When Kairach comes with his 250 men, and they come to Meishu Rabbeinu, and they say to him, Rav Lochem, Hashem, who are you to declare yourselves the leaders when everybody's halig? So the punishment that follows is unprecedented. As the Pesach tells us, when Moshe Rabbeinu is threatening Kairach and his Ada as they're about to die, and he says like this, If they're going to die like a regular person, Hashem didn't send me if this is going to be a natural death. It has to be in Bria Yivra Hashem, a whole new creation of the earth is going to swallow them alive. And then, which is, of course, exactly what happened. And even before that, so Moshe Rabbeinu warns Klai Yisrael, don't go anywhere near these Rishoyim. Don't even touch what they have. And as Rashi points out, how terrible Machlaikas is, that in this case, up until now, people were punished for those that were involved with the Chait. So the Moshe, by the Miraglim, those that were 20 years and older, they were the ones who were punished. The children weren't punished, but over here, everybody was swallowed up alive. The men, the women, the children, the possessions, everything. So we see here there was a special, extra strong Tevia and Kairach and his Ada for what they did, that the punishment that they got was an unusual one. We have to understand why. Obviously what they did was wrong, but why was it so severe that a Kodesh Baruch Hu invented a whole new type of punishment just for them? And the truth is, before we even answer that question, we have to really understand, if we look at Kairach's Taina, as we said, there is some validity that seems like to what he's saying. We know, Pasuk tells us, Kodesh Baruch Hu, when he chose Klal Yisrael, when he chose Klal Yisrael before Maimed Arsina, what did he say? Kodesh Baruch Hu says, every single Yid is going to be like a Kayan. Every single Yid is going to be a Kodesh. 
And we have a commandment, which we read about in Vayikra, Kedoshim Tiyach, wants everybody to be Halig. So Kairach is coming with what seems like a valid taina. You're making yourself greater than everybody else? Hashem chose each and every one of us. Everybody's Halig. Everybody's great. Why are you declaring yourselves, so to speak, greater than everybody else? So what really is the answer to Kairach's taina? So those are two questions. So, to answer that, I want to tell you what I saw in the Sefer Nesiva Shalom from the Slanam Rebbe, which we've quoted many times, a Sefer that we've quoted many times. Nowadays, especially in the liberal states, like the ones that we unfortunately live in, so we hear a lot about equality or equity, with the idea being that everybody, no matter who you are, a man, a woman, a child, an adult, a grown-up, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what the color of your skin is, everybody has to be exactly the same. In practical terms, that means that if a man says, I'm a woman, we have to give him the women's rights. So he can be able to compete, let's say, in sports that a woman runs in. Or he can do other things, which I don't want to get into because we're sitting in a show in a hay-legged place. And it involves those kind of things. Or it involves a person saying, you know why I'm eligible? To be what? To be the next mayor, or to be the next governor, or to be the next president or vice president? I'm black. The color of my skin. That gives me the eligibility. You don't have to have the credentials. You don't have to have the smarts. Doesn't matter. Equity. Everybody's equal. And if you want to show that you consider me your equal, you have to elect me to be your mayor or president or whatnot. That is a distorted view of reality. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world in a certain way. That there are systems in place that every single part of creation has its tafkid. Every single person has its tafkid. And every single individual and every single group, they have their unique tafkid that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave them to complete and to do in this world. What a woman's meant to do is different than what a man is meant to do. And everybody has their Unique tafkid. It doesn't mean that anybody is less or better than anybody else. It just means that their job, their responsibilities, their obligations is different than the other group. And so, that is the distorted view that the liberal world unfortunately has, which they try to impose on everybody else. But we know the terrorist view is different. No. It doesn't exist. That idea doesn't exist. Everybody has their tafkid, and everybody's tafkid is different than one another. And the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, when it comes to Gashmias, or when it comes to Ruchnias, is there is a hierarchy. There's always something called, there's a Naisen, there's the Mashpia, and there's the Mechabel. So for example, in order for things to grow, for the grass to grow, for the plants to grow, for the fruit and the vegetables to grow, there has to come down rain. So the heavens, the Shemaim, so to speak, is the Mashpia, is the Naisen, and the earth is the Mechabal. That's how Kaddish Baruch Hu created the world. There's a hierarchy. It goes from one chain, goes down a whole chain, from one down to the next. That is the structure of Kaddish Baruch Hu created the world with a man and a woman also in marriage. The husband, the man, he is the Naisen, he's the giver, the wife is the Mechabal, and that is the Metzias. And nothing can really change that, because that is how Kaddish Baruch Hu created the world. This is a fact. And this same thing exists also in matters of Ruchnius. Of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the Torah to all of Klal Yisrael. But he implemented in that also a tzura, a hierarchy in how the Torah is going to come down, from Shemayim down to earth. And that hierarchy is in the structure of Rebbe to Talmud. The Rebbe gets the Torah from his Rebbe, 
and he transmits it to the Talmud. And that is how the Torah is given over. So any kind of spirituality, Ruchnius, Torah learning, or Yerush Shemayim, it was, it was put into the Tzura of creation that it has to come down in this derech of Rebbe to Talmud, of Nisan to Mechabel. And that is the Metzius, just like everything else is a Metzius that cannot change. When you see, we read about this at the beginning of Yisrael has a Metzius that goes all the way directly back to Harsinai, to the Rebbeinah Shalom, but it came about from Rebbe to Talmud, and they transmitted it to all the future generations, and it comes down all the way to this generation, a direct link of Rebbe to Talmud all the way to us. And that helps us understand what's happening here in the parsha. Because we asked, what did Kairach say that was wrong? And the truth is, Rashi points out, By the way, there was somebody here once, he spoke by Shol Judas. How do we know that Kairach was a Pikeach? Where do we see that? Nowhere in, the, in, this, in this week's parsha do we see that he was a smart man. Unless he could argue that he was coming with smart tainas. But where do we see it? So he said, They were convinced 250. Ah, okay, that's a good point. That he was definitely a good speaker. He was definitely, <laughs> definitely had the power of persuasion. Okay, but this guy said, jokingly, he was the only person who figured out how to take everything with him. Those after, he was able to take everything with him to the grave because, as we said, he took everything down with him. Who? The Kol Rechusham, it all came down. Okay, but that is the joke. But Akapanim, Rashi says, why? Why did he decide to start up? You have nothing better to do? You know you're going to lose? Didn't he realize what's going to happen to him? Says Rashi, He had Ruach HaKodesh, and he saw Ruach HaKodesh, that his descendants are going to be standing by the Mishkan, and they're going to be singing there. And, and, and not only that, as Rashi says, um, Right. Right, so he saw, right, so he saw, he saw that Shmuel and Avi is going to come from him. So he said, all of this greatness is going to come from me? Obviously, that means that I'm meant to become the ruler of Klal Yisrael. So we see from here one thing. The Kirch was a great man. He had Ruach HaKodesh. He saw his future descendants. He knew what was going to be. But that didn't help him. Because what he didn't realize was that there is a structure to how Ruchnius comes down into the world. You're right. Everybody is Halig. Everybody has Kaychas that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives them. Everybody has a Tafkid in the world. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu put into the Surah of, of creation that it has to come down in the Derech of Rebbe Tatamid. And that Rebbe is Maishir Rabbeinu. And therefore, as great as Kairach is, if you don't submit yourself to the Rebbe of Kla Yisrael, you lose your ability to exist. And now we can understand why they were punished so severely? Why was it such a, uh, a terrible way of dying, more extreme than anything else? Because this was not just a regular Avera where they did something that they weren't supposed to do. No. Here they're going against the whole hierarchy and structure of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu set up the world, of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants Klai Yisrael to run. That it has to be in that surah. Comes along Kairach and says, no, everybody's equal, everybody's great, we don't need a Rebbe. Says Meisher Rabbeinu, says the Rebbeinu Shalom, you argue on the tzura of creation, on the whole foundation of how the world, of Klai Yisrael, of spirituality is meant to exist. 
the punishment is going to be so much more severe than a regular Avera. And that's how we can explain what happened to him. And that's why also, that is the answer to what Kairuch is saying. Yes, and it's true, everybody is great, and everybody has the, the potential to reach greatness. But you can't do it on your own. You have to have guidance. You have to have a Rebbe who's going to tell you what to do, how to go about it, and how to conduct your life. And he is going to give you the guidance to do the things as he understands, which is what the Rebbeinu Shalolim wants from you. And this is something which is relevant up until today. Every single person has to be Mikasha himself. To a Rebbe, to a Rebbe, to a Sheshiva, to a Rav, to somebody who can give him spiritual guidance. I was speaking to Chaim before he was telling me how his son, Noam, is, uh, his, his father-in-law is a Rav in Ranana, and they call him what? Tzadik Miranana. He's a well-known Makubal, and everything he does, he doesn't take a step without consulting with his father-in-law. So, not only is it good for Shalom Bayis, but it's also good for, uh, for, for also for his spiritual growth. You follow what the Rebbeinah Shalom wants, connect yourself to a Rav, let you, allow yourself to be influenced by the Rav, and then you are going to be able to be showered with the spiritual and the physical brachas of the Rebbeinah Shalom because it's through him, it's through that derech, that the Ashpois all come down. And of course, if you're a Chassid, you take it to a whole new level by the Chassidim, they believe, definitely, and it's just something which has sources within the Svarim HaKadoshim, that the Tzaddik is really the one who, so to speak, is the conduit of transmitting the Shefa and the uh, connection to the Rebbeinah Shalom to the world. So if a person, Chalila, is not connected to a Tzaddik, then he's, so to speak, losing his Dveikas with the Rebbeinah Shalom, and this is definitely a very big topic and something which, uh, you know, the, the, the chassidim are very into. But even if you're a misnagid, it doesn't matter what you are. The idea of having a rav is something elementary, or something that everybody knows and everybody needs to have, because that is how the Rebbeinah Shalom created the world. So, with that in mind, how then do we connect to a tzaddik? How do we connect to a rosh yeshiva, to a rav? What's the best way to do it? So there, of course... No, there's nothing, uh, nothing can replace having a Rav that you can pick up the phone anytime and call him and ask him your shyness. Everybody needs to have that, like we said. But, Kalal Yisrael always also found another way to get chizuk and to be mizdabek to tzaddikim by hearing sipuri tzaddikim. Stories, stories of tzaddikim, how they lived their lives, how they grew up, how they conducted themselves. And when you hear these stories, so... It helps you in, 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 in different ways. First of all, so it connects, it creates some sort of a kesha, some sort of a dvegas with the tzaddik, because now you know about him, so you appreciate him more, so you're connected to him, and this helps you, as we said, achieve the dvegas in the tzaddik, but also on a more practical level, <clears throat> you see what greatness is and what a human being can accomplish and the great levels that you can reach, and that inspires you to try in your own little way also to elevate yourself, that you should be able to build up yourself. You may not be like the great tzaddik. It's very difficult. It's not cut out for everybody. But at least in your own little way, you can elevate yourself and say, yes, you know what? If he's able to do these great things, then I certainly can do some small things. It shows us how great a person is, the greatness of a person, the greatness of a yid. And so when we hear these sipuri tzaddikim, they're meant to inspire us and help us grow, and that is really what connects us to the tzura, as we said, of Rav to Talmud, which goes back all the way to Meishu Rabbeinu, 
which goes back all the way to Kabbalah Satayr. So I want to share with you some stories which I've been reading in two books uh, that I uh, just uh, recently completed. One is the book on Rebetzin Batsheva Kanievsky, the, the wife of Abchan Kanievsky. The second one is the book on Atasha Rebbe, both by Art Scroll. We all know that the undisputed Rabbi Shalkobnei Akoyelu in our time is somebody that the Rav, who just walked in, grew up with. Abchaim Kanievsky. Rabbi Rav Ruderman, the Rashiv in Baltimore, was in Eretz Yisrael probably in the 1970s. And he came back, he was very happy. He said, I was in Eretz Yisrael, I bought a mantle for a Sefer Torah. He bought a mantle, he bought a cover for a Sefer Torah. He bought a mantle for a Sefer Torah? He says, yeah. He met Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who was, of course, much younger than, probably in his early 60s, or not even in his early in his 50s. And he was so inspired, and he was so impressed. He says, I saw a labor de Kasefa Torah, Chaim Kanievsky. I wanted to buy him a mantle. Yeah. So he said he bought Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky a new coat. He needed a coat for the winter. He bought it for him. He came back. He was very happy. I bought a mantle for a Sefer Torah. Chaim Kanievsky, of course, was married to... Okay, we'll talk about that later. That's one of the Rav's pet peeves, but we're not, I don't want to get into that right now. B'chaim married the daughter of Rav Yashiv. Rav Yashiv, of course, lived in Yerushalayim. B'chaim grew up with his parents, the Stipler, in the home of the Chazanish. Which is, which is in, okay, which is in Bnei Brak. Now, Traveling from Bnei Brak to Yerushalayim today, it's very easy, it's no big deal. You hop on the bus, you're there within 45 minutes to an hour. But in the 1940s, 1950s, it wasn't as simple. And Reb Chaim felt that he has to be home, especially on Shabbos, so he can observe his uncle the Chazanish. So during the first few years of marriage, while it's normal that young couples, they go to the parents for Shabbos, especially to the wife's parents, they barely ever went because the Rebbetzin understood that Chaim needs to be there in that house so he can grow in his entire learning. And really throughout their entire married life, they were married for over 60 years, they hardly went together for a Shabbos to Yerushalayim. And as they describe in the book, for over 60 years of marriage, there were less than 10 Shabbosim that they spent together as a couple in Yerushalayim. And the Rebbetzin would tell uh, girls who would come to her, Kalas, she would say, you should know, that I was, it was a big mysterious nefesh for me when she would see other young couples on Friday going to Yerushalayim to visit their parents. She said it was very, very difficult for me. I missed my parents. I really wanted to be there to see them, to be, spend Shabbos with them, but I knew this was what Chaim needed, so I decided to forgo that, uh, that's chus. Instead, they stayed home. When they were first married, they lived in an apartment in Bnei Brak, a three-bedroom apartment, but they didn't have three bedrooms. The three-bedroom apartment was uh, made up of three different families, all future G'dayli Yisrael. Reb Chaim and Rebetzin Kanievsky in one bedroom, Reb Nisim Karelitz and his wife in another bedroom, 
And Rabbi Amram Zaks in another bedroom. Of course, Rabbi Nisim Karelitz was a big Pesach, was Nifter for years ago. Rabbi Amram Zaks was one of the Rashivas of Slobodka. And the other one was the Kanievsky family. So they lived in one bedroom. They had, uh, there was a shared bathroom and a shared kitchen. And that's how they lived for a few years, the first few years of their marriage, with peace and harmony with everybody else. Because to become great, you have to have great mysterious nefesh. Or prime, as it's well known, every single year he finishes Kola Kula, which includes, includes Tanakh, includes Shas Bavli, Shas Yerushalmi, it includes Shulchan Aruch, and it includes Rambam. One of the Sheva Brachas of their children, Reb Chaim says to the Mechutin, to tomorrow, tomorrow night's Sheva Brachas, I'm not able to come. He says, you're not able to come, why? He says, I have Chayvis. I have to take care of my Chayvis. So the Mechutin felt so bad, he says, Oi, he has to pay the Chayvis, the debt, from the wedding, whatever the wedding expenses were. So he spoke to one of Reb Chaim's Kanievsky's Chavrusas, and the Chavrusas said, no, 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 he's not talking about financial Chayvis, because Reb Chaim has absolutely nothing to do with money. The Rebbetzin took care of all the finances. He's talking about the chayvis that he has in his learning, that he has to complete a set amount of things every single day. So those are the chayvis of, of the Godel Ador. That's how he lives his life. And it's, that's through that Masirah Snefesh and those, that tremendous Amal Atayra, he was able to grow into who he became... The Chaim and his Rebbe never ever had a phone in their house. And he said the reason is simple, because it causes Bittal Torah. It shares the learning if you have to call people. Anytime they had to make an important phone call, so they would go to a neighbor and they would call from there. And uh, just one, one more interesting story. We said that as a couple they hardly went to visit her parents, but when the first few children were born and there was no hospital in Bnei Brook, so it was decided that any time the Rebetzin had to give birth, she would travel to Yerushalayim to stay in the hospital there in Bikacholim, and then after the baby was born, for a week or so, she would stay by her parents, Rabbi and Rebetzin Eliashev. <laughs> One of the babies was born shortly before Shavuos. So uh, the Rebetzin gave birth, it was a day or two before Yantiv, and then on Yantiv, Chaim who knew that the baby was born, and it was a girl. So he went to Shul, and he gave the name for the baby. Since it was Shavuot, so he gave the name, of course, the name Rus. Comes Matzei Yamtev, and he travels to Yerushalayim to visit the Rebetzin. And uh, he's, he's speaking to her, and then he says, Oh, how's, how's uh, Rus doing? So she looks at him, Rus? Who's Rus? So he told her, that Our baby, his name is Rus. I gave the name Rus today. So, you take what you want from that story, but the point is that the Messiris Nefesh that the Rebetzin had, the Messiris Nefesh that Reb Chaim had, that they were willing to forgo all the kind of comforts that a person is used to, and she trusted him completely, that she doesn't even, he doesn't even have to consult with her to give a name. Instead, she knew that any name he gives is Kodesh Kodashim, and she was very happy with it. And he knew that she trusted him, so Imela, he was able to give the name that, that he felt was appropriate. And... The other book I said, the mention, the, the Tasha Rebbe, who was Nifter five, six years ago, he was at a Sheva Brochus. Excuse me, not a Sheva He was at Nicham Avelim. By a family that he had known them from Montreal. Uh, of course, as, as it's well known, the Tasha Rebbe, after World War II, he came to Montreal. And after uh, about uh, 10, 15 years there, he moved to a, he built himself a shtetl, 
a little bit out of town because he wanted to be away from all the distractions and all the uh, different bad influences that being in a big city can have. So he established Kiryas Tosh, which is uh, about a half hour drive from Montreal. He comes to be Menachem a family of people that knew him when he came first to Montreal. And he says to one of the, uh, one of the kids who was sitting shiva, who was a middle-aged man, he says to him, it's time for you to grow a beard. He was clean-shaven. He says, why, why is it so important for you to, for me to grow a beard? He says, no, it's very important. Why me? He says, because I was at your bris. And at that bris, that was the first time, it was in Montreal, that was the first time that I had Gile Elio here in Canada. So I felt a very spiritual elevation from your bris. I feel a special connection. You have to elevate yourself also and grow a beard. That was the godless of the Tasha Rebbe. As we said, he went to establish Kiryas Tosh. And the first property he looked at was in 1960. A property outside of Montreal. It looked perfect. They were about to sign the contract when all of a sudden he sees that the owner of the property, a guy, he had put up at Salem near his house, which was also right near the property. Tasha Rebbe looks at it. He says, no, we have to, uh, we cannot buy this property unless you agree to take it down. The owner, who probably was a devout Christian, he says, no, I'm not taking it down. If that's the case, says Tasha Rebbe, then we're not having the sale, and that was it. Okay, that was that. It's three years later. In the meantime, the Tasha Rebbe found a different property where he built Kiryas Tosh. But on that same spot, and this was, I forgot to mention, this was on uh, Tesva of Tammuz, which is the yard site of the Archaim HaKadosh, is when that story unfolded, that he decided not to buy the property. Three years later, on that same spot, there was a terrible plane crash. 100, 181 people died in a crash right on that property where he was supposed to build his uh, shtetl, his yeshiva, on that property. And Tashrebbe felt that it was in the schus of the Orachim HaKadosh that he was saved from signing that document, signing that contract and buying that property. And uh, as a Hakaras type to the Orachim, when he built his yeshiva, he named it Yeshiva Sarachaim. And he was somebody who was really on a different plane, very high spiritual level. And again, just like by Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, the Ruach HaKadosh was in his house constantly. One of his, uh, during the war years, he spent, uh, he spent a year in the Munkatabur, which was the Hungarian forced labor camps, where unfortunately many Yidin were enslaved under very, very difficult conditions. And because he was so halig, and he was also a grandson of the Tasha Rebbe, the previous Tasha Rebbe, so the people who were with him, the Yidin, they tried to help him out. They said, you know what, we'll do the work for you, we'll cover up for you. You go engage in your Avodah Hashem and your learning and your davening, we'll cover up for you. And he had tremendous accursed of to these people till the end of his life, people that helped him out. There was one such Yid, his name was Rabbi Sorrel David Weinberger, uh, who always took on extra work so the Rebbe himself wouldn't have to do any work. It's many years later. Mr. Weinberger is now living in Montreal. He's 96 years old. He's in the hospital. He's towards the end of his life. Who happens to be in the hospital at the same time? The Tasha Rebbe himself. It's Shabbos, and the grandson who was with his grandfather in the hospital sees that his grandfather is slowly dying. And he knew the Tasha Rebbe had a minion in his room, which was just down the hallway. So he goes to the room. He says, my grandfather is dying. Can we bring over a minion for Yitzhak's Neshama? Which is exactly what they did. And he was to pass away with a minion in his room. They said, Shema. They said, Psukim and so forth. It was only afterwards, though, 
that his son remembered, Mr. Weinberger's son remembered, that when he had gone a few years earlier to the Tashar Rebbe, the Tashar Rebbe says, your father did great toivus for me in the camps, and I am going to remember it and pay him back till the day he dies. And that's how tough it was, literally. On the day, the way he died was with the minion of the Tashar Rebbe himself. And of course, as great as he was in Avedas Hashem, but he was totally and completely Ibergegeben uh, to helping out a fellow Yid. And he used to say, the Gansazach is to help a Yid. And one more story, which means, by the way, our job is to always help out another person. And I just want to conclude with one more beautiful story. It's Seder night in Tush. And Seder night means, by the Tush Rebbe, that's a full day of uh, getting ready, preparing for Pesach. Physically, which included giving money to many, many families who needed money for Yom Tev and making sure that everybody that he knows is taken care of. And it means getting ready spiritually, preparing for Yom Tev, including baking matzah mitzvah and so many other things which he would do very, very late at night. Finally, everything is done. The Rebbe is ready to sit down to the Seder to make, to make Kiddush. All of a sudden, the door opens and in walks a man who they knew he was not 100% emotionally unstable. So the Gaboyim wanted him to start. The Gaboyim wanted him to start. The Gaboyim wanted the Rebbe to start quickly. They gave, they gave the guy a setting. They gave him a seat. There's only one problem. There's no matzahs. Because they gave away the matzahs to all the guests. They run to the neighbors. Anybody has any extra matzahs? Nothing. What does the Rebbe do? He has his own matzahs that he baked that day. He gives it over to this fellow. And the Gabayim said, the Tasha Rebbe would work an entire year on his Seder night matzahs. He would cut the wheat right after the previous Pesach. He would guard it the entire year. He would hand grind it himself with his own kavanas. And then when it came time for matzah mitzvah, he would bake it with yichudim, with kavanas, with whatnot. Tremendous, unbelievable. But none of that mattered. When another Yid is there, even a, a poor person who's not 100%, he's another Yid, the Gansazach is Sehelfenoch Yid. He gave over his Helegematzas to this person. And so, as we hear these stories of Aragadoyalim and other stories that everybody knows, we should try to, in our own little way, take away something that we could be Machazik from. And this way, Taka, we could be Zoycha, that in our own way, remember that. Every single yid has potential for growth. Every single yid has potential for greatness in his way. And through that, we'll bring Nachas Ruach to the Rebbeinah Shalaylam and everything we do.